You know, I had a conversation recently with one of you where we were entertaining this question, what exactly is a sermon? Like, think about this for a second, how odd what we do here is on a Sunday morning to the secular world. They're like, okay, so you're going to sit in a big room, uh, you're going to sing some songs, maybe make some prayers, and then listen to some dude get up and talk for 28 minutes uh, about a lecture. It just sounds weird to modern ears, doesn't it? <clears throat> but even within the doors of the church, I still think that there's confusion over what a sermon actually is. And so I've oftentimes found it helpful to mark out what I think a sermon is not. First of all, a sermon is not a, a pep talk. This is not the, uh, the motivational speaking portion uh, of the service this morning. Secondly, it's also not the opportunity for the church leader to download his opinions about uh, how things are going in the world. Nor, thirdly, is a sermon just getting up and kind of talking about the Bible line by line. Our seminary professors used to call this a running commentary sermon where unrelated facts about the text are relayed in unrelated ways. So I've been getting more and more comfortable over the last few years with this particular definition. A sermon is the output that comes when you pose certain questions to the infallible text of Scripture. Think about that for a second. We believe, like we studied this summer, that the Bible is God's very Word, expressed in words and propositions and sentences. That Word is powerful and dynamic, this, this literal living force for the will of God as He executes it in the world. And so a sermon is what happens when you pose a certain question to that text, and of course its surrounding context, to see what the answers would be. Now, that actually brings out a couple of quick thoughts. First is this. This will help you account for why it is that different preachers can preach different sermons on the same text. Why? Because they posed a slightly different question to the text. Secondly, it also helps you to understand why it is that certain sermons just kind of lose you in the midst of them. That's simply because oftentimes a preacher is taking up questions that nobody in his congregation is actually asking. This is the sin of fresh seminary recruits, is it not? Because <clears throat> they're the ones who have been trained, rightfully so, to entertain academic questions about the text, which, let's be honest, not all of us in the average life situation are asking. But thirdly, and most importantly, that is not to say, though, that every single question someone could think of to ask the Bible is equally valid. I would argue that there are actually a range of questions established by the Bible itself that would frame for us what a good question is to pose to the text and, as it were, what would be a misguided one. Now, look, that last point that I'm making there is never more clearly seen than when you turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, the opening of the whole Bible, because it's possible to preach this chapter in many different ways. On the one hand, we might look at this text and ask it about certain character traits of God, which turns out is exactly what we're going to do this morning. We might also look to this chapter and ask a question about the dignity of man, something which, by the way, Brian is planning on talking about next week. But where I think we would ask a not-so-helpful question of this text is if we went to it and said, tell me how old the earth is. Now, mind you, I'm not suggesting that there might not be other places in Scripture that give us some insight into that question, only that for this text, it's not in the range of good questions to ask. You remember this summer we tried to emphasize that the Bible comes to us as wisdom literature. 
It is not, as some often hope for it to be, a scientific textbook on the exact manner of how God creates the world. Okay, so that leaves the question, though, right? How are we going to approach this text? Well, we said last week that we entitled this series Origins because we want to pose the question to the first 15, maybe 17 chapters of Genesis to ask how it is that you establish a basic structure for how a Christian sees the world around them, how we view the world. And from that view, we're asking, what does this section of the Bible say about God and about us and the world around us? Last week, we saw in the opening that the great thought of God himself as the author of all things should be put in the center of all human thought. And so this week, we're going to get to one of the first recorded traits of God and hopefully discover how that affects us. And that is simply this statement, that the Christian God is a creative God. And I want to unpack that by using two big ideas. I want to first of all see the God of creativity, and then second of all look at the gift of creativity. Take that first one. Like I'll be the first to say that whenever preacher types like myself open up a sentence being like, let's look at the creativity of God, I get a little bit skeptical because it, it kind of feels like we're about to start to do something really touchy-feely or something. But I'm actually rooting that statement not only in the opening line of the whole book, but in actually the creative way in which the whole chapter is laid out. Look at verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. By way of reminder, last week we talked about how theologians have said that that creation that God did because he wasn't using pre-existing material to do so was unique. We don't mirror that kind of creating. We do, however, do a kind of creation that we're actually going to get to more in the second point. But what people often miss is how Moses puts this first chapter together. And it's really beautiful. I, I think actually you can see a little bit of it just in your English translation of it when you see, as it were, just a bit of a rhythm to it, right? There's almost a cadence to Genesis chapter 1. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And every section begins with, and God said. So even if you just read it in English, you would see that there's, that there's something to this. But when you look at it in the original language, it becomes downright amazing. Now look, before I dive into that, I want to make one small little caveat because I don't want to be misunderstood. There are people who will digest what it is I'm about to say, and they will say to themselves, oh, so Genesis 1 is just Hebrew poetry. And I get why they would say that. There's a slight problem with that, though, because this chapter doesn't really match any other known examples we have of ancient Hebrew poetry that we have surviving from other sources. However, by saying that it is not a poem per se does not mean that it's not written artfully. That's the word I want to lean on. And when you see it in so many ways, and the first way is, is in literally the way in which the author has written the Hebrew. Look, you've heard me say in other places that Jewish people had different relationships to numbers. Numbers were significance for more reasons than just counting. Most of all, the number seven, which was a whole number in the Jewish mind. When you think about that and look at Genesis 1, you'll be amazed at what happens. Let me just give you a handful of examples to show you this. So the opening line, Genesis 1 verse 1, is made up of seven words. The middle word, which is untranslated in English, has two Hebrew letters, which are the first and the last of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Ta. Turns out that there are actually seven words in verse 1, but there are 14 words in verse 2. 
There are seven paragraphs in Genesis 1-1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, marked off by the phrase evening and morning. The concluding seventh paragraph in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, are, um, begin with three lines. Guess how many words are in each line? Seven. Not only that, each of the key words in chapter 1, verse 1, get repeated throughout that section in multiples of seven. The word God is repeated 35 times, seven times five. The word land, 21 times. Same with the word skies, seven, 21 times, seven times three. Seven times are the divine commands sort of given to creation itself, let there be. And here's the crazy thing. I could keep going, but I'm trying not to bore you this morning. What's my point? My point is there's no way this is an accident. Uh, Old Testament scholar Umberto Casuto said this. <laughs> he said, to suppose that all these appearances of the number seven are mere coincident is not possible. This numerical symmetry, as it were, is the golden thread that binds together all the parts of the section. What's the point? Well, while this is not necessarily a poem, can you see the artistry that Moses is employing in order to express this, this wondrous act of God speaking all things into existence? It's almost as if he was thinking about it and mulling it over, and it was so overwhelming and so, so magnificent that just saying it wasn't enough. He had, to, he had to say it with some flair, and so he does. But here's the thing, that's not the only example of the artistry of Genesis 1, far from it. Scholars have also taken note about how interesting it is that Moses lays out the days of creation in the text. Here's what I mean. In verse 2, you get very much of an anchor phrase when it says that the earth was, what? Without form, and secondly, it was void. So two interesting Hebrew words to describe the chaos that existed. So but if you look at it, the first three days are taken where God creates what we might call the forms or the realms. The first day he creates light and separates it from darkness. The second day he creates the sea and separates it from the land. And then on the third day, he creates the fertile earth with all of its produce. Those three days comprise, as it were, a little grouping. These are the forms to deal with the formlessness. Make sense? Now what we need in the next three days is to fill those forms up so that they are not void. So the next three days are when God does just that. The fourth day, he creates light bearers, the sun and the moon. The fifth day, he creates all the sea creatures and sky creatures to fill up the void in those forms. And then on the sixth day, he creates the animals that fill up the good earth, along with the crown of creation, mankind, who's going to occupy a unique space among that place. Now look, for a second, don't get distracted by the kinds of questions that we oftentimes ask when people wish that this text would give them more scientific information about how all this is possible. You maybe had somebody come up to you and say, well, how is it that you have light on day one, but then you don't have the sun and the moon until day four, right? And my answer, of course, is I haven't the foggiest idea. But I don't think that's the question that the text is entertaining. And so therefore, neither should we. I would warmly commend our dear brother, Greg Davidson, has written a wonderful book called Friend of Faith, Friend of Science, and even some other books as well, that I would warmly commend you to do some more study in this area. But again, don't get distracted by those kinds of things, because when you get to the real kernel of the truth here, 
The text is saying, look at the character of this God who in the majesty of his creation exercises something so artful that when Moses starts to wrap his mind around it, it can only come out in these beautiful ways. And there it is embedded in the, in the, in the Hebrew text. What's the lesson? The character of this Christian God is a creative God. He is the kind of God who looks into chaos and he speaks. And when he speaks, there is order and beauty and truth and goodness that all come together in this harmony that when you look at it, it's just a simple wonder. In this sense, God is the great artist as he designs and orders and establishes the universe, yes, in predictable patterns that we can see, but also into unpredictable discoveries that he simply waits for his children to look up. You think about this, an artist sets out, right? He has a pen and paper, maybe, maybe a paintbrush, maybe a lump of clay. Maybe they have a guitar or a piano or just a sketch pad or even, bear with me, a spreadsheet and a ledger. And he or she hopes to bring something new into the world, to, to, to get something that will beautify the world, to, that makes people flourish instead of living in despair. So one of the things that Genesis 1 is telling us, among a lot of other things, is that if humans have that instinct, it came from him. Don't believe me? Fast forward to Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, and you find in what, that place one of the last recorded speaking uh, sections of God in the whole Bible. And you know what it begins with in verse 5 of chapter 21? God says, Behold, I am making all things new. It's a sermon in there somewhere about the character of God as being a new God. He's the newness God. He loves to see things remade, restored, repaired, so that we look back and be like, ah, oh, it's brand spanking new. That's at the heart of our God. And it also means that you and I will never stop joying in uncovering those things which are new to us. We all re rejoice in that. It's been so much fun to kind of watch people sort of freak out about the images that are coming from the, uh, the new telescope the Webb telescope that's sort of been launched and ca calibrated and we're starting to get the first pictures back. And, of course, it's freaky because we're, we're blowing our minds to see these images that are coming of how many galaxies are in these you know, sections of the universe that would be the depth of a grain of sand to us. And I remember I was reading online recently, and there was someone who was sort of commenting on that early picture this summer. And I remember them in the midst of the article saying, Man, we are so insignificant. And I thought, well, why did your mind go to insignificance? I mean, if you're dealing with just the smallness of man, I'm with you on that. That's true. But what if all of that creation was made for you? That's a different discussion, isn't it? Would that not change your perception of those deep space photos? Because that doesn't re reveal our insignificance, not if it's for us. No, those images reveal what will occupy us for the rest of eternity for all who know God through Jesus. So that's the God of creativity, which I think sets us up very nicely to see the gift of creativity. Because look, you've got to wrap your mind around this. There is a God at the center of the universe, at the center of reality, who speaks with an artist's voice. And that means that we creatures created in his image, and again, so much more on this next week with Brian, have a built-in need, a desire, 
an impulse, an instinct to create, to make things. At the root of our humanity is this desire to see truth and beauty and goodness displayed in every part of God's good world. That is how, that is the fundamental instinct to how a Christian approaches the world around him. It, it, I think I would make a case that probably J.R.R. Tolkien is one of the great magnificent voices uh, in the last century to write on this particular topic. Tolkien wrote, it's actually a fairly dense little essay uh, called On Fairy Stories, where he gives his basic understanding of the idea of creativity. And his main point is this, mankind is a mimic to the creator's work because he takes pre-existing materials and forms from them a new way of seeing, a new way of being that Tolkien calls sub-creation. Then, with that created object, it's placed, Tolkien says, in an imaginary world of, of, of purely of the artist's making. And in that world, it has this power to move us. But here's what's crazy. Tolkien goes on to say that this new world that exists inside his mind is not something that sort of takes away from you and I in the real world. Quite opposite. It actually reveals it more vividly. In other words, Tolkien's saying you will see your own world in new relief when you see it contrasted through the artist's eyes. That's how we learn our world. It's not, art is not escapist, essentially, in that regard. But that's what good art does. It makes us think. It draws us in. Sometimes it elicits emotion. But for our purposes this morning, I simply want you to wrap your mind around this is God-given. This is what God has done, a God-derived blessing for us humans to enjoy and delight in. Look, for that reason, there's all these blessings that come to us from God's creative hand. I thought of at least three. There's probably a zillion more. The first thing is, is we find that creativity, therefore, is just wondrous. And I use the word wondrous because it means that, that there's a sense in which creative expression is supposed to take your breath away. It's supposed to hold your, your attention, that you get fixated like a, like a child who sees the beauty of the world and is trying to take it all in. When, when my dad was um, working for an accounting firm early in his career, I think he decided at one point that he needed to spend more time with his son. So he started taking me on his business trips, which were crazy boring, except for the plane ride. This is the late 1970s, and flying was a little different back in the day. Some people would agree with me on that. But I remember as a child going up for the first time above the clouds, which is freaky the first time you get up there because you're like, wow. But then when you start to process it and realize that I'm one of the few, if you go back to human history, <laughs> I'm one of the few people of only in the last, what, 100 years or so, who are able to have the privilege of seeing <laughs> this show that God has been putting on for nobody but himself for forever. And here I am, I get to get on a plane and see and be like, what? Every child wants to mash their face up against that little porthole window on an airplane to see the beauty of what God's made above the clouds. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of that, my favorite uh, G.K. Chesterton quote where he talks about the tendency of children to look at their parents and say, hey, do it again. Listen, this, this is fun. Chesterton says, because children have this abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, 
Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person has to do it again until they're nearly dead. (laughs) Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. Listen to this line. This is amazing. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun and do it again in the evening to the moon? (laughs) It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies look alike. I love that it was daisies because that's my wife's favorite flower. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. He just hasn't gotten tired of making them. There's something about a wondrousness that we look, even in mundane things that we think are repeated by just processes. No. It's God looking at his children saying, hey, watch this. And we say, do it again. Secondly, creativity is also work. It's related to work. Because I've lost some of you. Some of you like being like, mm, okay, this is cool and everything for all the artsy people in the room. I'm not wired that way, Les. I don't understand it. I don't get art. But you know what? That's actually not true. Because if taken from this perspective, God's creative power constitutes really just about every legitimate human vocation, does it not? You may feel sort of discomforted as, a, as an accountant, right? I'm picking on accountants this morning. As you sit over your, your mundane spreadsheets, But isn't there something deeply creative about taking the chaos that is a business's finances and trying to bring a sense of of form and order to their balance sheets? It could be a blessing. But what the truth is, is it doesn't come easy. The creative process, like most artists will tell you, is the pursuit of work in order to get there. Oftentimes, the creative people have done and made what they created simply under the spirit of necessity. Or if you're a child in the midst of boredom, creativity comes out all because You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of um, one of my favorite Calvin and Hobbes cartoons. So Calvin's in a little uh, sandbox, and, and Hobbes walks over to him, <laughs> and he says to him, hey, do you have an idea for your story yet? Calvin stands up and says, no, I'm waiting for inspiration. You can't turn on creativity like a faucet, Hobbes. you got to be in the right mood. To which Hobbes says, well, <laughs> Well, what mood is that? Calvin says, last-minute panic. The point is, work itself is tied up in the character of God's desire to see his own people reflect his character. We're going to talk a whole lot more about this in a couple of weeks when we talk about man's need for work from the book of Genesis. That leads me to the third and final sort of application. Creativity is also, it's not just work and wondrous It's also revelatory. It opens doors. God's creative instincts help us see him. And the Apostle Paul, you wouldn't have thought, was the one who picked up on this the most. Go to Colossians 1.15. Paul says that Jesus is the, quote, image of the invisible God. That word image there is the Greek word icon. He is the icon. Paul's point is that Jesus is the artistry of God that we can see and touch and feel. Not only that, he goes on in Ephesians 2.10 to say that you and I are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Look, don't miss this. 
Paul is seizing on this idea of the creative God when he realizes that there was no other greater work of art that God composed than in the saving of lost souls just like you and me. That word translated in Ephesians, workmanship, is the, is the Greek word poema, from which we get the word poem. God is writing poetry, but the most sublime verse that he ever penned is the manner and the execution of an eternal and complete and unchangeable rescue of his people through his son Jesus. And like staring into the pixels of the web telescope picture, we wonder at the endless expanse of what God has done, not just in the universe, but on my behalf, in his grace. In other words, we'll never get tired of contemplating God's salvation on our behalf. We never tire of that. It's always endlessly interesting. In other words, when we see God moving in Genesis 1 to speak life in this chaotic primordial sea, every Christian has been set up to see him speaking order into our lives in Jesus Christ. And that realization, they realize, has now colored everything else in life to be something so profound that Peter will go on to say that even the angels long to stare at it. He's done something so complete and so wonderful, going into the, into the chaos of our own hearts and speaking light and order and forms and something into the void. And what that means is when you and I do our mundane tasks, they're not so mundane because there we see his hand. Whether, whether you're debugging lines of software code or whether you're putting the finishing touches on, on an employee manual or whether you've just changed your fifth diaper that morning, whether you're writing a sermon or sitting down and making a family meal plan, maybe you're, maybe you're looking up a source quote for your paper, or maybe you're listening to your favorite artist's latest album. All of those are invitations for the Christian to come in and to see God's hand in it all and to rejoice in how he's revealed himself through his good world. Look, so in the end, the point is, God has called all of us to be creatives. We are all called to be consummate artists, to be about the business of making the best versions of what is true and what is beautiful and what is good. And by that means, to be agents of his glory in the world. And as we consider how Christianity contrasts with the secular life, I simply want to ask you a question. Do you have that vision of life? And second of all, could there be anything higher than that? Something worth thinking about. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into it because we don't see the way in which we should. But if by your spirit you would take the scales off our eyes and we could suddenly see the beauty of this world in a sky, in a cloud, in the smile of my child's face, in the joyous celebrations that we have together as your people, sitting over a wonderful meal, watching a sunset, hugging a long-lost friend that we've not seen in too long, staring into the eyes of our lover. Father, in all these places we see that you have infused this world with glory. And we want to see it. We want to drink it. We want to enter into it. And we know one day we will. So give us that sense. Give us that picture even this morning as we sing in closing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.